As I mentioned in the beginning of the service, places hold significance to us, especially when it comes to holidays like Christmas. We remember back to our childhood years, going back to our homes of upbringing, or we remember those, whether we go back in our minds or whether we go back physically, and we recall, you know, decorating the tree with family members. We, we smell the scent of Christmas cookies baking in the oven, whether it be ginger cookies or, what, or whatever. Um, and so it's just glorious as we go back in our minds. Or we remember going to grandma or grandpa's house on Christmas Eve or Christmas night. And I remember going on Christmas night to our maternal grandparents' home. And there came a point every year where we'd have to all gather in the living room and we'd watch grandma and grandpa open their presents. And it took forever because grandma didn't want to tear the paper. So she took it up and she folded the paper and then she wrote down the gift and she held it up and the kids, all the cousins wanted to go and play again. It all would have been lost had we not had a gift on our lap. We tore into our lap and nine times out of ten it was like a pair of socks. So that was no hope. But yet we still have these memories and we laugh about them today. Or you may have memories of shopping downtown in the shopping district and looking in the store windows, hearing the music and seeing the decorations and buying a tie for dad or, or an oven mitt for mom as a kid. Or you might have memories of coming to church in a sacred space like this and, and watching the Advent candles being lit week after week, anticipating the day of Christmas when the, we can get to what's under the tree finally. Or Christmas Eve as the middle candles lit uh, and we sing Silent Night together. All these memories and places hold significance in our hearts. And places held significance in the heart of God as well in the first Christmas story. And these places that we'll be looking at in the next weeks, these places are significant for us as well because they intersect with our world. For example, God gave names to various places like Bethel. Bethel meant the house of God. Eden, Garden of Eden, meant delight, the Garden of Delight. Moriah, Mount Moriah, as seen by God. And so all of these places and spaces had significant names that God named that we might remember. He chose a land of promise for his people, Canaan, to live in. He promises us a new heaven and a new earth that we may live together forever. Jesus said that I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Again, this Advent we'll be exploring the places of Christmas and the significance that they have um, and why God chose these places. And we should start first and foremost with what we all know most full well, and that is Bethlehem. It's a message of hope. Why did God choose Bethlehem to be the birthplace of his son? Four reasons. First reason, he wanted to fulfill the promise of his promisey, uh, prophecy. The promise of his prophecy. Micah 5.2 in the Old Testament. The prophet Micah who prophesied 730 years before the birth of Christ 
he prophesied, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. One day you'll have a ruler that knew no boundaries of time. Even Herod's priests and teachers of law would have known about this prophecy. In Matthew 2, we read, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Well, they knew. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet Micah had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So God used these pagan magi, or these Persian magi, searching for the king of the Jews. God used this evil pagan king uh, to, in the story, and God used a world ruler, Caesar Augustus, to fulfill this prophecy. In Luke, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, we read, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in line of David. He went to the town of David because he belonged, and he went to the town of David because there was a decree that was issued. It was an order. It was not an option. So these specific prophecies would have brought tremendous comfort to Joseph and Mary. They would have assured them that God is in control after they would have experienced great rejection from their townspeople in Nazareth. Psst, did you hear? She's pregnant. Mary's pregnant. And she says it's a miracle. If you ask me, the only miracle that, that's taken place is Joseph will remain with her. Rejection. And so not only did, did Joseph make this 90-mile trip on foot to Bethlehem, but Mary went with him, fully pregnant. They experienced disappointment. Mary would have said, hey, Joseph, do you suppose God will provide for us? Do you suppose he will give us a safe and nice place to give birth to our child? And then later on, what's this? Joseph, it's a cave. It's a, it's a stable filled with smelly stench of animal feces. Is this really... God's plan for us, Joseph? Some great favor that he promised. Have you ever experienced disappointment like that? Disappointment with God, even? Or they experienced fear. Soon afterwards, King Herod, 
he pronounced an edict to kill all of the baby boys two years old and under in the surrounding area of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Well, Bethlehem. And many believe it was like a five-mile radius around Ramah in the north and Bethlehem in the south. Joseph, our child, is going to be blamed for the death of all of these innocent baby boys. How can we possibly make it through this, Joseph? Fear or incredible loss. When the Magi had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to kill him. So, once again, they had to pack up their belongings. They had to leave Bethlehem, not settle in. They had to travel not 90 miles back to Nazareth, but they had to travel 430 miles in the opposite direction to Egypt, which would have made their first trip seem like child's play. 430 miles. Anyone care to walk to St. Louis with me tomorrow? Mary would have said, can't we just go back home to Nazareth, Joseph? No, Mary. The Lord specifically told us to go to Egypt. But how long will we have to stay there as refugees, as aliens, I don't know, Mary. I don't know. Loss. Why did God choose Bethlehem? When Jesus comes into our lives, we often believe that life will become great. Joy and happiness, contentment forevermore. We are, after all, like Mary, we are highly favored, according to Ephesians. We're graced just like Mary was. And in many ways, life does get better. We experience peace. We experience assurance of eternal life, healing. But in other ways, life can be even more difficult as believers in Christ. Because after all, we're now encountering spiritual opposition, spiritual warfare, and the world hates the truth. The darkness hates the truth. And when we go through difficult times like these, it's easy to doubt God's compassion. It's easy to doubt his leading. And sometimes it's even, we doubt his existence when life turns south. Raymond Edmond, president of Wheaton College yesteryear, said, never doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Never doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Joseph and Mary would have had to recall and remember their experiences in the light, how God had provided for them, how he sent the Magi, how he sent the shepherds, how the Magi gave them gifts so that they could go to Egypt and afford to have some cash to make it along that journey, um, how God protected them and gave them a safe delivery of their child, and how God promised them through the prophecy, the words of prophecy, that this child was to be born in Bethlehem, the child, the son of God. And we struggle with rejection and disappointment, fear and loss. And when we do, we need to remember God's past provision and his promises that he reminds us through his word, through a spoken message, through a teacher perhaps, something here on the radio, 
through a praise song as you listening to it, you hear his promises. Uh, or through godly counsel from a friend, God speaks and confirms that he is faithful. He'll remain with us. So why Bethlehem? To fulfill his promise as a prophecy. Secondly, God chooses the ordinary and the common. Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of what? Do you know? House of bread. Awesome. It means the house of bread. What can be more common and ordinary than bread? It's cheap. It's accessible to everyone. Even the most meager meals in a prison camp would offer bread and water. Well, the Jewish expectation was that when the Messiah came for us, the Savior, the King of the Jews, he would be born in a palace, in a house of royalty, wealth, celebrity, and power. He'd be born in a prominent city like Rome, Athens, Alexandria, or Jerusalem. And so when the Magi traveled all the way from Persia, month after month, and finally arrived, then it's understandable that they would stop in Jerusalem, this prominent city, to see this newborn king of the Jews. But the prophet Micah highlighted another place for this king to be born in another town that seemed to be very insignificant in the eyes of the world, Bethlehem. In fact, he highlighted it in his prophecy when he said, You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. In fact, Herod's priests and teachers would have known about Bethlehem's prophecy as they were in Jerusalem prophesying and doing their thing. And when they were asked, they were able to say, point blank, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew it intellectually, but they didn't experience it emotionally. Otherwise, they would have responded. By their lack of response, we know that they truly didn't believe the prophecy. We don't generally think of powerful and influential people coming from ordinary places like Frewsburg, New York, or Polk, Nebraska, or Cocker City, Kansas. Unless, of course, you're the brilliance behind the greatest ball, largest ball of twine. But then the world has hardly heard of Cocker City, Kansas for their ball of twine. And yet, God chooses the ordinary to do extraordinary things. God chose Bethlehem to remind us that he chooses the ordinary people and places to accomplish his extraordinary will. I certainly never would have thought I would be preaching up here ever when I was growing up. I was reminded of this just a couple of days ago when we were unpacking the boxes for Christmas to decorate. And I opened up this random box, that, just a cardboard box, and and I discovered a bunch of treasures from my childhood, like junior high yearbooks and such. So I reminisced in my nostalgia, and I, I came across this envelope, and it had five of my grade school report cards on them. <laughs> and uh, my, my kindergarten teacher gave me straight S's, except for one space, out of probably 30 different categories. One space, I got an N. S means satisfactory, N means needs to improve. And it's over under speaks distinctly. 
I would have never thought I would be preaching to a church, much less a church like this, with over five or 600 people who attend. And, and then I discovered my fourth grade, grade class uh, report card, and again, it had a bunch of S's in there and some I's improving. Uh, but then I looked on the back, and it says, John has improved greatly in his classroom behavior. He still talks too much, though. This is something he's got to work on. And then it goes on for the second semester. John has developed a habit of talking back and making unnecessary comments in the classroom. It's going to have to stop. Not only am I going to communicate, God, but I'm going to be a pastor? Okay, sure. I, gotta, I, I don't know what, what made her put this on my report card. I've got to i got to call her someday and ask her, what in the world were you thinking? I certainly don't feel like I deserve uh, to be a pastor like this, even still. But I have to remind myself that God chose an ordinary carpenter with an ordinary housewife to raise the Son of God. Here's the secret. The closer we move into the light of God in relationship with him, the more imperfection we see. Spiritually, physically, whatever. We see our weaknesses the more we walk into the light of God, the closer we get to him. So it doesn't surprise me that I feel insignificant or weak or incapable the closer I get to God. Because the gospel says you're still accepted, you're still loved just as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. We're all in process. We all go like this. We all disappoint ourselves in our expectations of ourselves. John Fisher wrote, I am, who's a musician, Christian contemporary musician, I am getting to where I pretty firmly believe that God, do, God does not reach anyone through our strengths, only through our weaknesses. Our strengths only bring us glory, bring us glory. His strength and our weakness makes him the star. God's ministry through us requires us to be stripped of pretense, religiosity, and self-reliance. It's not that we, he can use us even when we're down to the raw bone of who we really are, he can use us only when we are down to the raw bone of who we really are. And yet, C.S. Lewis also observed, though, there really are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, whom we joke, uh, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. We are all immortals. Either we're immortally separated from God for eternity or we are everlasting splendors. But Bethlehem was chosen by God as the house of bread because I think God wanted to communicate to us that he majors on choosing the ordinary and the common to do the extraordinary. And for that I'm very grateful. And Miss Miller would be proud of me for saying that. Thirdly, God chose Bethlehem, the house of bread, which also reminds us that the Messiah was born to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Jesus would later teach when he grew up in his ministry years, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. In other words, Jesus satisfies us. He gratifies us. He strengthens us spiritually just as bread satisfies us physically. But many seek to satisfy themselves by pulling up to the wrong table. Another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55 wrote, Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, God says, and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Man, we pursue happiness in so many different ways than in looking to our creator and our savior. Many rich and famous people achieve their success by discipline and hard work. Yet, when they ultimately reach the pinnacle of their careers, they're often left with a sense of emptiness. It's like, is this all there is to win a Super Bowl and have a trophy? And why do I still feel empty? Apart from Christ, we will be empty. George Clooney, actor, wrote, most of the time, I wake up and feel like I've somehow missed something. Ted Turner, in his commencement speech, spoke about success. He said, it's all relative. I sit down and say, I've only got 10 billion, but Bill Gates has 100 billion. I feel like I'm a complete failure in life, so billions won't make you happy if you're worried about someone else who's got more than you. He will never achieve happiness if it's based on his income. Julian Lennon, the son of John Lennon, one of the fab fours of the Beatles, he wrote, I felt he, my dad, was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to people who supposedly meant the most to him. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces? No communication. You can't do it. Not if you're being true and honest with yourself. So John Lennon he appeared to reach the pinnacle of the music career, the, one of the greatest musicians ever, if not the greatest, and yet his life was in shambles. Solomon, who spoke about life after achieving his wealth and power, in Ecclesiastes, he wrote when he was at the height of his wealth and power, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And so the whole book of Ecclesiastes is asking, what is the purpose in life? And then he comes to the very last verse in Ecclesiastes, and he writes, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. This is how we experience long-term satisfaction in life. Know God. Draw near to him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. We can sit down across from someone at a fast food restaurant and watch them chow down on their Whopper with cheese and fries and stuff, but if we're not participating with them and eating, then our hunger will not be satisfied just simply by watching someone else eat. We need to partake ourselves. And when Jesus said, you need to believe in me, come to me, he said, you need to abide in me. I am the bread of life. 
You need to remain in me. You need to trust in me. You need to depend upon me. You need to lean upon me, Jesus said. And when you do that, you'll experience my promise. You won't be hungry. You won't be thirsty. I will satisfy you. And then finally, this is a really quick point. God chose Bethlehem because Bethlehem was a foreshadowing of what to come. Bethlehem is where the shepherds would birth baby lambs intended for temple sacrifice. Typically, lambs would be born in the fields with typical shepherds. But those who worked near Bethlehem, they also worked near Jerusalem in between. And in Jerusalem, there were thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices in the temple that believers in God would sacrifice. And so there needed to be places to birth and raise these lambs in order to be sacrificed. And so many believe that in nearby Bethlehem, that would have been one of those birthing stations and one of these, in several of these mangers, so to speak, just five miles south of Jerusalem. And so Bethlehem would have been the place where Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be born to sacrifice his life as the Lamb of God for our sins. Born amidst the smelly stench of sacrificial lambs in the stable. So why did God choose Bethlehem? Just in review, first, he wanted to fulfill his promise to us. His promise that came in prophecy to Joseph and Mary and their experiences. And it was a fulfillment of many of the Old Testament prophecies. Secondly, he wanted to choose the ordinary in the common, the house of bread, in order to fulfill his extraordinary will. Thirdly, he wanted to let us know that he's come to fulfill our spiritual hunger. And then finally, he said, I am the sacrificial lamb. I was born to be a sacrifice just outside the gates of Jerusalem. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're here today. We thank you, Lord, that you communicate through your word and your story and whatever, Lord, that we heard in our hearts, in our minds today. We ask that by your spirit you massage it so that we cannot forget uh, your promises to us, your provision for us. And so we offer ourselves to you once again as living sacrifices, especially during this Advent season, Lord. Uh, may you fill us with your hope that we may be vessels of, of hope to a hopeless world. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.